Take your Bibles and uh, turn or scroll with me to 1 John. Well, saints, in the past few weeks, we have traversed ground in John's epistle, which is very sacred for those of us who are believers. We've been admonished to not love the world, to not set our affections on the things in this world. Those things that we see around us. Everything here is but a distant second to the excellency of knowing Christ Jesus, our Lord. And the glory that will be revealed in us. As well, we are told to be sober-minded. To know that there are indeed false teachers and false philosophies that run rampant in the world. And even can associate within the church as well. Praise God for the provision of his spirit that he has given us to lead and to guide, to comfort us. Now, the apostle in our passage this morning will continue this theme of righteousness. But as he writes, he becomes overwhelmed with that which he's passing on to us and rightfully so. It's a beautiful thing when you read God's word and you see the very, very human authors completely overwhelmed in praise as they are trying to, I'm sure, process in their minds exactly that what they're passing on to us. And they kind of go on this little excursus, a little side note, because they just they don't know what to do with this, what they're given. Keep in mind, the Apostle Paul, I'm sorry, the Apostle John, he's elderly, well advanced in years. He's writing this epistle with a very pastorly heart, knowing the difficulties, the challenges, the persecution that Christians face then and will face throughout time, seeking to give them gracious Bits of perspective and knowledge. Wanting us to know that which we need to know. Now the word of God, all of it, is God-breathed, inspired. It is useful for instruction and teaching. But we know that there are particular passages on a personal level... That just resonates specifically with us. Perhaps because of something we've uh, lived through or something we've experienced. And they just seem to pop out at us. But there are passages that by and large for all of us are just breathtaking. They give us a view of God's love and of the glory to come. It's as if we can almost touch it. And I'm telling you, if the Apostle Paul could, the Apostle John couldn't keep it together, neither should we as we encounter this. It is exhilarating and no doubt gives us comfort and perspective in our current trials and questions and doubts. One well known and very fruitful pastor. Confess that he avoided this passage for years 
for years until he preached through First John and couldn't avoid it anymore because he, he wanted to do it justice. My prayer is that this passage will refresh and invigorate each and every one of us this morning. Indeed, you will see it contains a behold or a see statement. Where John just comes in and rattles the cage and says, look, look at what I'm saying. This is amazing. And may it be that we have utter astonishment afresh with the Lord's kindness and love to us. With that in mind, we're going to read the last couple of verses in chapter 2, beginning in verse 28. You'll notice, especially lately, I've kind of moved on, then I've gone back and kind of brought what we didn't talk in as much detail on with us in sermons, because John tends to, it's like a spiral. He just goes like this all throughout. You might think to yourself, haven't I heard this before? Well, actually, yes, you have, because he's bringing us the same truth in many different ways. So we'll begin in verse 28, but I just want to say we're going to spend more time on it next week as well. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him, Christ. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what will be has not yet appeared Oh, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Because we will see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Now this passage begins with a very simple directive. Abide. Remember, he's just been talking about false teachers that will even be associated within Christian circles. What does it mean to abide? Jesus said in John 8, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. You will know the truth, he says, and the truth will set you free. One pastor gave three R words to understand what abide means. Abide means, number one, to remain. To remain in the truth of God, in the house of God, with the people of God. To abide means to rest. To rest in the truth of God. 
to rest in the truth and the power of our salvation. To abide means to remain, to rest, and also to rely. To rely on the comfort that the gospel gives us. To rely on the truth that God reveals to us. And so we can make application of these ideas when it comes to the word of God, obviously to abide in the word of God, to abide in prayer, to continue in prayer, our prayer life, fellowship, to not be disconnected from believers the best that we can, and so on and so forth. But why is he addressing this? Why does he tell us to abide in the truth? Remember, the false teachers have already left. He wants us to have confidence in the Lord's return when he comes. To greet his return with confidence. More on that later. Suffice it to say for now. That it is only the one who is truly born of God that can live a God-honoring, righteous life. Now John is proceeding to argue the obvious difference between those who have been born of God and those who have not been born of God. But he doesn't get very far. He gets caught up in wonderment. And he erupts in praise. Just as Paul did in Romans 11. Like what are these guys supposed to do? They're the conduit. They're the ones who are bringing us the glory of the gospel. The power of the gospel. And the love of God. And it's as if words fail them. They're processing what they're writing as well. John. The elderly apostle living out the rest of his days in exile for his faith. His colleagues, his fellow apostles, most of them by now have died a martyr's death. And he's asking the question, what can I give the people of God to comfort them, to help them, to sustain them, to motivate them? When in this case, persecution was fierce. And all kinds of false philosophies and worldly philosophies were swirling around. I'll go back to verse 1. If George were here this morning, by the way, keep him in prayer as he continues to heal from his foot surgery, but if he were here, he would tell you that his King James says, behold, your translation might say, see or look. He says this love. He's now talking about the love of God. He says, listen, look, would you believe this? The love that God has shown us. Remember, 26 times in this one letter alone, John talks about the love of God. It is both a command and also an exclamation. Look at this. 
You need to come here and you need to see what I'm seeing right here. Come and admire and adore this expression of love. There is no parallel phrase in English that even comes close to capturing the essence and the vibrancy of this phrase. Look at this. It gives the idea that this, in this case, the love of God, this love is from out there. It's not something we've seen before. It's alien. It's unknown to us. It's not something that we see in our day-to-day life. It's not something that we see in the philosophies and the people that we rub shoulders with. It is extraordinary. And it's actually that phrase is not used that much in the New Testament. But I'll tell you one time that it is. Remember when the disciples were out on the boat? Storm came. And everybody on the boat was naturally freaking out. Except for Jesus. Who is taking a nap. And he comes up and what does he do? He just says the word. And we're good. And what did the disciples say? Who is this guy? Who is he? That even the winds and the waves obey him. It's the same phrase. Who is he? What is this love? We've never seen this before. It is the most magnificent display of love that we have ever known. But don't think of it in a sentimental sense. Think of it in terms of action. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. The one who created the universe, who sustains all things by the word of his power. Took on the form of his own creation. But not just that. He took on the form of a servant. But not just that. He became obedient to death. But not just that. He became obedient to death. Even death on the cross. At the time the most cruel method of executing prisoners or criminals. The one who knew no sin became sin for you and for me and died a bloody mess on a cruel Roman wooden cross. That's the love that John has in mind. That God would go to that length to rescue, to reconcile, to forgive. Friend, today, are you in wonderment with the love of God? Oh, it's so easy, the busyness of life, the trials, the stress that we are all feeling these days to lose track. Right in the middle of this epistle of this letter, John brings us back and he says, you need to anchor yourself in this because Christianity The way, as the book of Acts says, the faith 
is not just a philosophy. It is not merely a make you a better person type of a philosophy. It is something completely other than. So now John is completely off track as far as what he was writing. He's now talking about the love of God. But what exactly is the substance of this unrivaled display of love? Well, it's the gospel. It is the simple declaration that you and I are children of God. The sum and the substance of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The core of the unfolding drama of redemption. Why Jesus came. Why he died. Was so we could be reconciled to God who is holy. And be called the children of God. God's nature born in us. But you say, isn't everyone a child of God? It's true that we're all God's children in the sense of being created by him. But the scripture speaks specifically to those who have been born of God or born again. Remember, that's one of the first things you hear from Jesus in John's gospel to Nicodemus. You must be born again. This is not how to make you a better you. You must be born again. Perish the thought that a Christian is merely a good moral person. While that should be true, that's not the definition of a Christian. So let's trace these thoughts in John's gospel. Very briefly, John chapter 1, John's gospel. This idea that John is presenting to us that we are the children of God. John chapter 1, this is John's prologue. John is introducing the great topic for the non-Jewish mind of Jesus Christ who has come. Verse 12. But to all who did receive him, that is who responded and received him, who believed in his name, he gave the right... The right, the privilege to become children of God. Who has the right to be a child of God? Those who believe in Jesus. Peter put it in a different way. He calls us partakers of the divine nature. We are not divine, but God is alive in us. 
And so, as he will continue to argue, argue later on, if the life of God is in us, if God is love, if God is righteous, we can expect to see that showing up in our lives. Look at John chapter 8. Is there a difference between those who do and do not believe in Christ? Listen to these stark words from Jesus. John chapter 8, verse 44. You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from, this is another one of these friendly conversations with the religious leaders at the time. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth. Because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character. For he is a liar and the father of all lies. There is a clear distinction and manifestly seen in John's epistle. But this precious statement, we are now children of God. This occupies a lot of space in your New Testament. It's a beautiful concept. I'd like to take you to just one incident, incident of that. Romans chapter 8 verse 17. Notice the progression here. Paul is talking about us being children. In the verse prior, he says the Holy Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. He says, verse 17, if children, then heirs. You see, we have not simply been saved from something. We've been saved to something. We are now, he says, heirs of God. We have inherited God himself through our union with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And fellow heirs with Christ. Look at that. Look at where we were and look at where we are. Because of the gospel. Provided we suffer with him, which is inevitable, in order that we may also be glorified with him, also inevitable. John is trying to wrap his brain around what he is conveying to us. And he's like, y'all just need to stop and take a look at this. I know that life is not a walk through the park right now. I know that life is difficult and life comes with many, many, many challenges. Every generation sees their own challenges. But Paul here says, I want you to know who you are in Christ. Remember that. Who you are in Christ. That was a theme all throughout the book of Ephesians when we preached through that book. And so there is this hope that John points us to. We are the children of God. He says we don't know exactly what that will look like. 
But you need to know that right now, you are the children of God. In fact, one pastor put it this way. He said, you are no more the children of God in the future when you are in heaven than you are right now. There is this progression that is taking place. Look at Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3 and verse 21. Speaking of Christ. Who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body when he returns. By the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. There is yet future where Christ, where God himself will transform our body to be like his. And all of this is because we are the children of God. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Just a couple verses here. Verse 12. For now we see in a mirror dimly. But then face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully. Even as I have been fully known. Here's the apostle Paul. Who knew a lot more about heaven and eternity than we do. And he's like, it's like, you know, you're looking at this mirror. It's like, it's just dim. You can't really see it. But you need for the hope to be the anchor for your soul. You need to reflect and to think about this. What does this hope prompt us to do? Verse 3. Everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Now think for a moment about what he has just said. What we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when, we, when he appears, we will be like him. Because we will see him as he is. He there distills the hope. Of every Christian soul. Bar none. To be like Christ. To know. That we will see. Our Savior. Face to face. Without the temptations. Without. Without the heartache. Without the grief. Without our own remarkable ability to put our foot in our mouth. To mess things up. We all know it. To fail. He says, listen. We're going to behold him. We are going to see him. And nothing will stand in between. We will forever be his. 
we will forever be in his presence. We will forever be rid of the effects of the fall in this world. Tell me you didn't come in here this morning with things on your mind, with heartaches, with challenges, with griefs, with difficulties. John says, look, that's not forever. We're going to see him as he is. Yes, heaven, the new heavens, the new earth will be a beautiful, glorious place. But the prize is Jesus. Seeing him, being with him. Beware of those who obsess over aspects of heaven that they're not really even sure about. This is the essence. We will be with him. We will see him. We will see him as he is and we will not die immediately. That's the hope that we cherish. And so John says, those who have that hope in them Purify, we purify ourselves. Notice what he says earlier on. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us. It's from chapter 1. That's God from the outside cleansing us up. But that's not what John's talking about here. It is in the nature of a born again child of God. That we are dissatisfied with allowing sin to remain in our lives. Oh, to be sure, some are more successful than others and we have our seasons in life. But the child of God who is aware of Christ's return, however that plays out, the fine details, cherishes this wonderful, beautiful hope In his or her heart. And is then driven. To purify. To get rid. Of those things that tend to stick on us. And pull us down. Why? Because he's righteous. It's the most natural thing for a child of God. To love other people. And to desire to do that more. And better. Because God. Lives in them. But saints, two more verses I want you to see. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 3. This, I think, is why John is speaking these words to us. It's the same thing with the Apostle Paul. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. Previous to this, verse 17, he speaks about the Holy Spirit being the Holy Spirit of liberty and freedom. He says, and we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. This is what we call In theological terms, sanctification, maturity, growing, developing, becoming. And all of this, he says, comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. This is the work, the faithful work of the Spirit in our lives. And here's what he's saying. 
there is a final destination which is glory, which we'll see in just a moment. But on this side of glory, there is a process in which God calls us to follow him closely and to be sensitive and aware to the Spirit's prompting in our lives and his conviction. And from one one degree of glory to another, he is bringing us to conformity to the image of Jesus Christ. Now, if you've been a Christian for more than five minutes, you know that this thing that we call sanctification is messy. It is difficult. The besetting sins that we talk about, oh, they pull hard. But I think John has an eye to this truth. He says, remember the end story. As you walk through life now and you encounter, as we've said, fill in the blank, temptations, uh, disappointment and grief and all of these things. Never lose sight of the fact that God is at work in you. God will never let you go. He will never forsake you. He will never leave you. And that which he started, he will faithfully complete. One more, Romans chapter 8, verse 29. What is our confidence? How do we know that this end result is going to happen? Look at Romans chapter 8, verse 29. Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed To the image of his son. That is the gospel promise in a nutshell. That those who have put their faith in Jesus. Will ultimately. Finally. And forever. Be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. We have confidence in God's purposes in our life. That, he says, that Christ might be the firstborn among many brothers. Referring to the resurrection. Saints. In the busyness. In the stress of life as we know it. In the midst of uncertainty and upheaval and disruption and everything else that we tend to face in life. I just have one question for you. Are you in awe of the stupendous love that has been bestowed upon you? Are you in awe of the love of God which has been shed abroad liberally in our hearts? I'm not here to browbeat you. If the answer is no, that's okay. 
Because that's why John wrote the epistle. That we wouldn't lose track of that. I want to stand before you this morning and declare to you and speak over you and speak clearly to this love that has been shown you. Don't lose sight of that. Slow down and soak it in. I mean, how do you think these first century martyrs did it? They did it by keeping themselves in the love of God. They did it by walking with Christ. By not being distracted from the things around them. In just a moment I'll pray, but after I pray I would like us to just sit in silence. Maybe 60 seconds before Tim leads us in a response song. To just recalibrate. To take it in. You know, every single time in the New Testament, when Paul or John or James, whoever, asks you to do something or tells you to stop doing something, do you notice they always tether it to who you are in Christ? That's what they tether it to. You were children of darkness, now you're children of light. Live as children of light. Live out who you are. Know who you are. Be reminded of who you are. I'd just like to read these words to you. As soon as I find them. This is Paul's prayer as recorded to the Ephesians. It's a very instructive thing to examine the prayers of the apostles as recorded in the New Testament because you'll, you'll find very little about Aunt Helga's stubbed toe. You'll find a whole lot more about Christians knowing who we are in Christ and being strengthened and helped in that. This is chapter 3, verse uh, verse 14. For this reason I bow, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you, here's God's heart, to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being. Why? So that Christ may dwell comfortably in your hearts through faith. That you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know experientially to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the fullness of God. That's his whole prayer. That God would grant you the strength to wrap your brain around how much he loves you. Imagine living from that position of strength. Imagine our relationships as we are confirmed in the love 
of God. It is no surprise what follows. If you can get that, verse 20, now to him who is able to do far abundantly than all we ever ask or imagine, according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations forever and ever. Amen. Would you join me in a word of prayer? With every eye closed and head bowed, it's always good from time to time to take stock of where we are and even gathering to worship on a Sunday morning can become routine if we're not careful. The gospel of Jesus Christ is full of good news, which is why it's called the gospel, which means good news. That despite our own sin and failures and what we say missing the mark of God's holiness, we can be completely reconciled to God. It is apart from our efforts It is apart from anything we bring to the table, which actually is a huge relief. It is by receiving a gift. Believing that the Lord Jesus Christ is who he says he is, that he lived and died among us. That he died for sinners, took our sins upon himself, was buried and rose again. If you have never put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible says today is the day of your salvation. It is as uncomplicated as literally calling on his name from where you are right now. Admitting your sin. And putting your full faith and confidence in the Lord Jesus Christ. To my fellow Brothers and sisters in Christ this morning. Are you weary? Are you stressed? Are you anxious? I can't imagine that you're not. Come and refresh yourself. In this stupendous reality. This love that caused even the aged Apostle John to say, look at this. Look at this. Let it wash over you. But perhaps more importantly, as you embark on a new week, keep this fresh in your mind and in your heart. Heavenly Father, thank you for your unfailing love. Thank you for grace. Lord, we confess we carry so many concerns and worries and issues in our hearts and our minds. We thank you that you will never leave us and you will never forsake us. 
We thank you that we can cast our cares upon you because you care for us. I sense that many of us just need to recalibrate a bit. To be refreshed and to remember your amazing love to us. That which you have bestowed and given us. And how many different ways and at different times your word speaks of your love for us. Coupled with intentionality and action. I pray that we would be encouraged. That we be refreshed. That we take heart. That we be comforted. And ultimately that we would be resolved. To press on. To know you better. To serve you. And to grow in anticipation of that glorious event when the Lord Jesus returns. The glory that is ahead. We give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. As Tim plays quietly, I just invite you for a brief period of reflection. Um, Before we sing together, focus your mind and your heart on this amazing truth that we've looked at today.